Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is actually Friday today. Glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. We do not have any good martinis today. In fact, we've got all bad martinis. Unless you count Jim being pretty happy with the Jets' first-round draft pick last night, a uh, offensive tackle, just as he suspected yesterday. But uh, in terms of political news, there's not much good out there, but we're going to talk about them all uh, nonetheless as we head into the weekend. But before we get started on the official martinis, Jim, I don't know if you saw this news from uh, Michigan where Karen Witsit, she was the state rep that contracted uh, coronavirus and was not doing well. And then uh, got the hydroxychloroquine and the z pack and uh, her health turned around and she credited President Trump for publicly mentioning that and, and thought that was a big factor in the fact that she was actually able to get that uh, medication. Well, she's uh, now paying the price for it. The Michigan Democrats are about to censure her. It's not just about this. She did call one of her state uh, legislative leaders uh, a racist for another reason earlier this year, but she's about to be uh, censured. And here's the, the money quote here from Jonathan Kinlock, chairman of the 9th Michigan House District Organization. He says, at the end of the day, we have political systems, we have political parties and political parties exist for a reason. They do not belong to themselves, Kinlock said, of endorsed candidates and elected officials. They belong to the members and precinct delegates of the Democratic Party. Jim, I know loyalty is a premium in politics these days, and we've certainly seen folks on the right and the left pay a price for not remaining loyal. But to say you don't belong to yourself is a bit chilling. Yeah, uh, the, you know, I, I can't wait till they start airbrushing her out of photos like the Stalin era. <laughs> uh, the, the next kind of thing that comes out of it, remember in the, so the 2012 Democratic National Convention at Charlotte, there was some mayor, I want to say it was in, South, in North Carolina, who'd said, at the end of the day, I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure somebody can Google the, the exact quote, but it was something like, at the end of the day, government is the only thing that every last one of us belongs to. And I remember thinking, no, <laughs> your, your, your whole equation is going backwards. The government belongs to us, not right. the other way around. Kind of revealing. Now, it's now, now, I guess the good news is we no longer belong to the government like property. Now we belong to our respective political parties. Yes. Well, that's so much more encouraging. Thank you for clarifying that. So we'll see what happens in Michigan. But uh, on to our first bad martini, Jim. And the only good news about this bad news is that I might not have to say this word very much anymore, but uh, that's a small price to pay if it had actually worked well. And it looks like remdesivir is not going to be the effective treatment that a lot of folks had thought it would be a short time ago. Uh, BBC a potential antiviral drug for the coronavirus has reportedly failed in its first randomized clinical trial. There had been widespread hope that remdesivir could treat COVID-19, but a Chinese trial, so there's your grain of salt, showed that the drug had not been successful according to draft documents accidentally published by the World Health Organization. The drug did not improve patients' condition or reduce the pathogen's presence in the bloodstream. It showed that researchers studied 237 patients, administered the drug to 158 and 79 got a placebo. After a month, 13.9% of the patients taking the drug had died compared to 12.8% of those receiving the placebo. The trial was stopped early because of side effects. So I would imagine there's probably some more clinical trials going on. I know when it comes to hydroxychloroquine, a lot of folks say it really depends when in the progression of the virus 
you administer it matters a lot. So I don't know if we're done with remdesivir, but this is clearly discouraging news. This is overall going to be a pretty pessimistic uh, three martini lunch, folks. If you need optimism, you know, yesterday I put up two corner posts, one about how uh, we've pretty much ended cold and flu season in the, along with all of the social distancing we've been doing to stop the coronavirus, uh, looking at those uh, uh, measures from those internet thermometers, which is a good sign. And, you know, for what it's worth, yesterday I laid out Robert Redford didn't say that we are more likely to have a, a worse second wave in the fall. He said it's possible, and I laid out all the reasons. If nothing else, we're going to be better prepared. Um, we should be able to handle this, and if we continue our good habits, the hand washing, all that kind of stuff, it really shouldn't be quite as bad as it is right now in the fall. But of course, like, you know, time will tell. There was an interesting theory going on about the, the chloroquine and hydrochloroquine. The short answer is that things that work in a Petri dish or in a test tube or in some other, in lab rats or something, don't always work the same way in a human being. We select lab rats because they're plentiful, expendable, uh, and generally their systems work close to ours, but not quite the same. And what they were suspecting in the case of the chloroquine and hydrochloroquine is, yeah, this stuff will kill the virus when you inject it in a sample and you're looking at it through a test tube or a, you know, a or something like that. When you're putting into those samples though, well, you're putting it in, in, a, in a, a dose that would probably be much more intense for the human body. You put it into a human body, can hydrochloroquine kill the coronavirus? Yeah, it can. The problem is the side effects that it will do will probably kill the patient. And that probably applies to a whole lot of substances on this earth. You know, the aim is to kill the virus and don't kill the patient in the process. Uh, I hate the possibility, but it's, there's a good chance this is the same with that other drug. There are some positive signs. One that like, so Scott Gottlieb, who's the former FDA commissioner, tweeted this out, and it was almost entirely technical gobbledygook and almost, in fact, I will read it to you, Greg, just so you know. Researchers cloned two human-blocking monoclonal antibodies using SARS-CoV-2-specific memory B cells isolated from patients with COVID-19 that bind and neutralize activity of the virus, demonstrating the basis for antibody drugs as potential therapeutics. Now, you understood all that, right, Greg? Absolutely. Okay, if you didn't, underneath it, I put out a GIF of the Kool-Aid man bursting through the wall and saying, oh, yeah, because that's the appropriate reaction. It is good news. Um, now, by the way, it is a Chinese lab because, you know, China's got a lot of research going on. So maybe some people be a little more wary about this. Um, it's complicated. But uh, the general gist is that, yes, this could and should work. Um, we'll have another, you know, I guess, kind of foreshadowing another uh, one of our martinis here. There are some promising signs here and there. Having said that, we are still a pretty long ways away from a uh, one clear treatment that we're expected to work very well for this. And um, the news about re resdimivir, um, <laughs> I'm never going to get this. The, the news about this drug is a particularly frustrating uh, development. It, we're not done out of the testing yet, but uh, you know, it's an early bad sign that really uh, is a gut punch when we need it the least. Two things in response to that. First of all, your description of the, the research being done reminds me, I don't know if you've heard the clip of Ben Carson explaining how sound goes from your ear and gets interpreted and goes through every step in your brain on how it works. And it's just uh, makes me never want to tweet about anything scientific again because I feel so <laughs> inadequate. Uh, also, it's possible I misheard you, Jim, but uh, I believe you're referring to Robert Redfield of the CDC, not Robert Redford. But uh, Correct. Correct. If we were confronting the Doyle Lonigan virus, now then we would uh, be with Robert. Redford. It is worth noting Robert Redford is not that. It's Robert Redfield. Redford <laughs> is the actor best known for playing uh, agents of the villainous group Hydra, like the director of Shield and Dan Rather. 
All right, on to our second bad martini now, Jim. And we'll get back to questionable treatments in a moment here. But uh, let's talk about a real crisis uh, from Politico. Americans could start to see shortages of pork, chicken, and beef on grocery shelves as soon as May, as major packing plants swept by the coronavirus remain shuttered and the nation's massive stockpiles of frozen meat begin to dwindle. Any empty shelves to date have been the results of bumps in the supply chain with stores being unable to restock as quickly as customers are buying. But bacon, yes, bacon, pork chops, and ham could be the first to face actual shortages. The amount of frozen pork in storage nationwide, more than 621 million pounds, dropped 4% from March to April, according to the USDA. Slaughterhouse rates are down 25%, and 400,000 animals are now backed up at slaughterhouses. And with meat plants of all kinds operating at just 60% of capacity, shortages loom for beef and poultry as well. That could lead to higher prices and a financial squeeze for farmers who are collecting less per animal slaughtered. Now, Jim, we like to joke about bacon now and again. Who doesn't love it? But this is a serious thing. We, I think we just talked earlier this week about uh, problems with uh, having to slaughter hogs and, and not getting the, the meat to market. But uh, this could be something that pretty much uh, impacts uh, meat consumption overall. Yeah, I, you know, I guess the only silver lining to this one I can say is, look, we're not going to, we're not talking about famine. We're not talking about mass starvation. But we are talking about a lot less food on the shelves in the coming weeks and months unless, you know, unless this reverses or unless they can work out some pretty serious supply chain issues breaking out all across the country. When, when, this, when we announced all these uh, restrictions, which I think were a good move, I, I, we needed to do this. Otherwise, the virus would be spreading everywhere and, every, and anywhere. Um, there were people who said, look, when you try to make this kind of a sudden change to the economy where you basically shut down all the restaurants, you shut down all the bars, uh, they, restaurants try to get by on takeout and delivery and uh, you, know, you can't really, that they're having a very tough time getting by even the covering the minimal costs of something like that. People stop going on planes, people stop going to hotels, people stop going to resorts and tourist destinations. You know, the whole country kind of freezes. And yes, we're still eating, but we're almost all of our eating is being done through uh, supermarkets and I guess maybe drive-throughs and, and stuff like that. Um, you end up, you're putting such an enormous change in the American economy, which is so interconnected and which is so complicated that, you know, somebody, I can't remember, I wish I remember who it was who said, but somebody said, we're going to be discovering prob economic problems a month from now that we had never foreseen or imagined. And I think everything I lay out in the second half of today's morning jolt is a good example of this. Um, we heard about the Smithfield uh, uh, plant, but, you know, but the pork one. Well, now we're up to about, you know, 11 or 12 different uh, meatpacking plants across the country that have been shut down. Some of them are really big and significant. Uh, the one in Pasco, Washington, uh, does enough beef in one day to feed 4 million people, and it employs 1,400 ones. Um, Indiana, Iowa, all across the country, uh, you're seeing Tyson Foods having to shut down. Um, when they can't process the meat, everybody who was used to shipping the meat to them on a regular basis suddenly doesn't know what to do with all the stuff they were supposed to ship off to the meatpacking factory. Uh, Minnesota farmers talking about culling 200,000 pigs. These guys do not want to do this. They are, this is not you know, greed or selfishness or anything, but they are now in a situation where you know, they just don't have an ability to sell it to anybody. And you could say, oh, okay, we could just, you know, uh, they should give it away to the hungry. Terrific idea. I'm sure many of these farmers, many farmers are doing this to the extent that they can afford to do so. Um, now, of course, the thing is, is that, you know, if 
you know, certain people, if you give them a, a live pig, they can figure out how to turn it into bacon. Lots of people can't. <laughs> so, and even, even if you do have that scenario, that poor hog farmer has just put enormous amount of effort and his own expense into raising those hogs and expected to sell them for money. And now they're not getting that. Um, seafood industry, uh, basically, you know, uh, for, for the, first of all, the entire sport fishing industry is pretty much shut down because everybody's stuck in their homes. But even for the, you know, the, the commercial fishermen, um, a good chunk of their demand came from restaurants. Uh, if you like going out and, you know, getting fish at the supermarket, cooking it yourself, good, good for you. God bless you. One of the few things that I can cook is shrimp. Uh, but by and large, people like getting their seafood in restaurants. And I know it's going to shock folks. People don't really like takeout fish. Um, generally, it wasn't meant to be served in styrofoam containers and taken home and eaten later. Um, so produce farmers, something very similar. I mean, some of these folks, they're like 95% of their rest restaurant customers are gone. Um, a lot of school systems are still distributing school lunches to kids who need it. But obviously, there's much less demand from schools. Now, just think about how many schools are in your community. And now picture at lunchtime and all the people lining up for the lunch ladies and getting either green beans or uh, French tater tots and French fries or, you know, mystery meat. I don't remember, I have typically fond memories of the school lunches back when I was growing up. But the <laughs> point is, think about just the sheer amount of that demand. Poof, gone in an instant for all these farmers. Um, they just weren't ready for this. Nobody was ready for this. And if you feel like, ah, okay, just move your stuff that you're making from, uh, for, for restaurant customers to, to consumer supermarket customers. Well, here's the problem. It was a good example from a guy who's at the, uh, directory of uh, dairy policy analysis at the university of Wisconsin, Madison. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Wisconsin schools are the world champions at dairy policy analysis. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't, don't, don't see, you know, don't see a lot of those in Alaska, but anyway. Um, and he says, look, you know, you, you go to a grocery, you know, if the restaurant wants like a five pound bag of shredded cheese, like say they're making pizzas or something. Um, they don't want a, a one pound bag. They need it bought in bulk, but otherwise they'd constantly have to, you know, open up new bags. The supermarket, unless you, you know, maybe at Costco or something, you're going to see a five pound bag. Supermarkets generally don't send, you know, massive stuff. If you have an assembly line designed to make bags, guess what? You cannot just snap your fingers and switch them over to make the consumer size bags. Um, so I mean, they're doing the best they can, but you can't turn on a dime, uh, processes designed to make particular, you know, food packaging and stuff. Um, so this, what, what all of these industries, food, uh, you know, meat, fish, chicken, um, produce, they're all in the same condition of the oil industry right now. And that they've set up their systems to produce regularly. And they were used to having, you know, customers on the other end able to take it. And all of a sudden a big chunk of those customers aren't there anymore. So supply is building up. And then the question is, what do you do when the meatpacking factory is either shut down or it's full because it's missing a whole bunch of workers who are out because of the coronavirus, or they don't have as much to ship out because half of their, you know, a good chunk of their, uh, their customer base has disappeared because the restaurants are shut down. Well, the good news for oil is that oil doesn't spoil. Meat, fish, produce, these things spoil and pretty darn quick. Um, so they all have the same oversupply problem and they're looking at this and looking down the road and saying they're going to have the same issue all the way through to fall. Now, I, mean, I guess maybe we open up the economy fast enough. Maybe we can increase demand. Maybe this thing will work out. But, um, I, I don't know, but this is a big, serious, when I looked at the scope of the problem in the process of writing today's newsletter, this is big people. This is very, very big. And I feel like this is the sort of thing that's not getting nearly enough attention in part because the media doesn't pay much attention to flyover country 
uh, as is, and probably my guess is, you know, our media has a lot more people who are comfortable denouncing what the president's saying than, say, looking at issues like food supply chain issues. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And Jim, I don't know that anyone super prominent, uh, with the exception of AOC, perhaps, uh, has talked about this at length. But do you get the sense that a lot of Greens and maybe with a story like this, the, the PETAs of the world are essentially saying, look, our agenda can be achieved. See, it's happening in real time right now. And like, yeah, the reason it's happening is because exactly what we told you would happen if we went down this path, we'd have to pretty much crater our entire economy to make it happen. So this is a good uh, canary in a coal mine in some ways, I think, to see just what the uh, the Green New Deal and some other agendas would uh, require economically. And uh, hopefully it deters people from actually wanting to go down that road anymore. It is. Um, so my, one of my all-time, I, I need to go out and get this book and maybe like, you know, have it, I do a reading of it somewhere. So Gary Larson was the cartoonist who created The Far Side, which is this, you know, often very twisted yes. uh, single panel cartoon, very popular in the 80s into the 90s. By the way, we were supposed to have a revival of this. I don't know what ever happened to that, but it certainly it was a hint that it was coming back. Uh, 1998, he had ended his cartoon, but he created this, this children's book called There's a Hair in My Dirt, A Worm Story. Trust me, listeners, I know where I'm going with this. <laughs> so it's a story of a young worm uh, who's getting a bedtime story. Think of it as like the, the Princess Bride, right? And the story is about this girl named Harriet who walks through nature and admires nature and she loves nature. But it becomes very clear, she has no idea how nature works. <laughs> she has this, this vague sense of how things are supposed to work, but she doesn't understand that birds eat worms and then they, you know, uh, spit up the worm bits to their children to eat. Nature's gross, people. <laughs> but Gary Larson, who had always had an interest in biology, um, is, is, you know, always been fascinated by this sort of thing. In his books, he talks about all the times he wanted to get a good dung beetle cartoon into the newspapers. And the newspaper syndicate kept saying, no, 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 you can't do this. Um, I think there are a lot of people, particularly environmentalists, who have this, uh, you know, perhaps not the most committed ones, but ones who just kind of have this like vague uh, Bambi cartoon notion of how nature works and how these things, uh, and, and how basically how the world works. And the interesting is I think there are lots of people in this world. Uh, the iPencil essay talks about all the different, we you know, ways, all the different people whose knowledge and hard work has to go into the creation of a pencil from the rubber eraser to the metal around it, keeping the eraser in place to the wood, to the graphite, all these things kind of be put together through the labor of all kinds of different people. This stuff is complicated. And the idea that, you know, AOC or anybody who's sitting there in Congress is going to think through and say, you know, let's, let's re, uh, refurbish every building in America in 10 years. You know, they, they just have no idea, one, of what's feasible and what's possible, and two, what these jobs actually entail. Uh, we are governed by amateurs in a lot of ways. And so it's, it's you know, it's kind of frightening, but this is, this, again, most people don't think about supply chains. You know, the, the food just shows up at the supermarket when it's supposed to. This is forcing us to think about these sorts of things of what happens in these meatpacking plants that most people in the country barely think about, much less the news you know, media is ever going to cover. And you know, this virus, because it's figured out a way to get into you know, the nooks and crannies. And one of my favorite examples the other day, Greg, was that uh, not too far from where my parents live, there's a small island called Defusky Island. Um, Defusky is a, uh, one of those islands that has no bridge. You can only get there by ferry. And it's one of those places where they don't really have cars, uh, other than maybe a few vehicles, like, you know, an ambulance or two. Everybody gets around on golf carts. Well, it's got a case. I looked it up. It's like 430 people on that island. So if you, you know, this, if this virus can get into those kinds of communities, it's going to figure out its way to get into 
every town that's got a meatpacking plant, all kinds of farming community, all, every food processing community in America is going to be at risk for this. And this is going to cause disruption. So the scale of the problem we're dealing with is enormous here. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what interests the media the most, Greg. No, it's not. I will tell you, though, as we transition to our crazy martini, Jim, what is interesting to our media today, and it's going to be our third bad martini for today, is uh, the president's coronavirus briefings. And a lot of times the media takes the president to task in ways that are highly dishonest. Uh, one example yesterday was uh, him urging folks to have disinfectant. And then someone from The Washington Post said, yeah, you can have this, but it costs thousands of dollars. And then someone actually looked at the Amazon site and said, yeah, that's for a 55-gallon drum. It's about uh, five bucks for, for 16 ounces if they were produced at that amount. So anyway, at the Thursday briefing, the president starts talking about disinfectant and UV light. And just as a little bit of background here, Jake Tapper actually does a good job of laying this out on Twitter. He says, Bill Bryan, who heads the Science and Technology Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security, talked about a study of the biology of the COVID-19 virus. And he noted that the powerful effect that solar light appears to have on killing the virus in the air and on non-porous surfaces such as door handles and stainless steel. Uh, he also said that injecting sunlight and UV rays into the virus causes it to die at a much more rapid pace just from exposure to higher temperatures and just from exposure to humidity. When they inject the sun, quote unquote, then the half-life goes from six hours to two minutes. And then he says they're also testing disinfectants. We've tested bleach. We've tested isopropyl alcohol on the virus, specifically in saliva or in respiratory fluids. Bleach will kill the virus in five minutes. Isopropyl alcohol will kill the virus in 30 seconds. And so then Trump comes up and starts talking about ways to use UV light and disinfectants as treatments. And here's how it came out. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning, because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that. So that you're gonna have to use medical doctors with, but it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see, but the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful. So the media, of course, takes us to the next level, saying that the president wants you to drink Lysol or inject Lysol and that sort of thing. The president was musing about it, which again, should have been a brainstorming session behind closed doors. Not sure why that had to happen in an open briefing, but uh, between the president and the media reaction yesterday, another frustrating day at the briefing. You know, Greg, the Trump fans who are among our listenership, and we have listeners who are very big Trump fans. We have listeners who are not such big Trump fans. Uh, you're gonna, Trump fans, you're going to hate the first part of my answer and my thoughts on this, and you're going to like the second part. So stick around, or I guess you could fast forward, but you <laughs> never know how long my comments are going to go. So you're going to have to guess. So, But easiest just to listen all the way through. The president should not be doing this. The, the briefings have now become 
uh, borderline useless or of minimal utility. We need more information. We need less luster. The president loves to go back, have enjoy his back and forths. These are clearly some sort of psychological fill in for the rallies that he used to have a great deal of enjoyment doing. The president loves to fight with reporters. And part of it is that reporters love to fight with him. And this is in his mind, you know, exactly what's terrific. His advisors have told him this is not going well that this is, his numbers are slipping. People are reassuring. He's seeing a drop in his numbers among support among senior citizens. Uh, the American, he, well, the president keeps bragging about the size of the ratings. And as I've, you know, ranted on several podcasts, Mr. President, do you think people are watching because they just love you so much? Or do you think it has anything to do with the fact that they're frightened about this virus that could either kill them or kill someone they care about? Do you think it has anything to do with that, you know, people tuning in? Um, and we've noted that day by day, the president does more of this. The doctors do less of this. The less hard, uh, hard factual information is coming in, in sm- smaller doses. Uh, and we're getting a lot more of what is a traditional Trump speech or press conference or back and forth with reporters. In almost every one of these, you can see the president must have heard something along the line. And he sort of kind of remembers it. And he kind of, you know, he starts, you know, associating with things in his mind. It is worth noting, all right? So uh, Columbia University has a Center for Radiological Research. Um, Earlier this month, they announced that they have what they call far UVC, right? It's a particular wavelength of ultraviolet. It's ultraviolet light, although I'm looking at the press release here, Greg. It's ultraviolet light. Uh, (laughs) Please be careful about ultraviolet light. It it won't just kill you, it stabs you a whole lot. Um, Ultraviolet light, far UVC can kill viruses and bacteria without harming human skin, eyes, and other issues. Uh, and he says, you know, the David Brenner, the professor who's di- director of the center, says this could be a potential be a game changer. It can be safely used in occupied public spaces, and it kills the pathogens in the air before we breathe them in. This is a big deal. Now, here's the thing. This is going to kill things that are airborne, and maybe it's going to kill the ones that people are exhaling as they're breathing or as they're speaking or something like that. This could be a really good development. You know, it's the sort of thing you put this in, in you know, subway stations or Times Square or, you know, all kinds of places. You have a much better shot of killing off, uh, uh, you know, th- this virus, lessening the spread, you know, that'd be a really great thing. Heck, this, this might be the sort of change we want to put, you know, full, as, as, as widely as possible, as often as possible. Let's just make sure there's not any damage to the skin or eyes or anything else. Um, now, the thing is, is that you can't get this light into you. It's, it, you know, it's very tough to, you know, it's not like you open up your mouth wide enough, it's going to get down into your lungs or something like that. So, this is not going to be the sort of thing you could inject into you. Um, same thing when the president talked about uh, various disinfectants and things like that. Yeah, and that is good. We should, that's one of the reasons we you know hand sanitizer is being used. It's one of the reasons people are trying to wipe everything down in all these hospitals. Like, yeah, getting it into you, though, is going to be tough. And oh, by the way, the things that kill the viruses will also harm you. That's one of the reasons we were trying to get the millennials to stop eating the Tide Pods. Um, you know, this, this is, you know, now you have Lysol corporations had to issue a statement, uh, saying, please do not consume our product. It is not designed for this, et cetera, et cetera. So that is, that is the, you know, what is, uh, that's the part that's critical of the president. President deserves all this criticism. He should not be going up there and just giving stream of consciousness ideas from the podium at the white house during a live televised briefing. There's a time and a place for it. And Hey, you know, if you have an idea, that's fine, but don't, this is not what those briefings are supposed to be there for. Now, the part where the Trump fans might enjoy more is, first of all, I think the, the co- coverage of this has become obsessive. 
it started with this idea that you know this the idea that trump told americans to start licking their fish tanks or something like that <laughs> because they needed the fish tank cleaner was going to do it and the president never said that and this idea of ah the, we, we've got the president this time look america it is april 24th 2020 we will hold an election in november despite what joe biden says who speculated that Trump's going to try to find some excuse to cancel it. We're going to inaugurate a president on January 20th, 2021. I want, you know, I, I'm very curious about what people expect to happen. Somebody's like, well, how soon can we get this guy out of there? Somebody said to me earlier on Twitter, I was like, January 20th, 2021. That's when it's going to happen. We're not going to do an impeachment. We're not going to do the 25th Amendment, which I, I, apparently that's this is the idea that there's this belief that if enough people start saying, oh, we should, in, we should invoke the 25th Amendment, that somehow Trump's cabinet is going to suddenly all rise as one and say, oh, you can't be president anymore. And it's going to, look, it's not going to happen. And the more time you spend focusing on, oh, we're not going to impeach the president a second time. We're having a hard enough time getting the House and Senate in a position where they can actually, you know, safely meet to vote, right? You're not going to go through this all again. The vote in the Senate wouldn't be any different. Like, people are spending their times fantasizing about this idea of, uh, of, of some other way in which Trump stops being president. And it's not going, one, it's not going to happen. Two, they, this is the same people who wanted to impeach the president a couple months ago. These are the same people who believed that uh, the Mueller report was going to take him out, like, Look, we get it. You don't think Trump should be president. Live in reality. He is the president we have until January 20th, barring any, you know, God forbid, some health issues. Stay, stay well, Mr. President, no matter how much I disagree. Deal with the now. This is the president we have. There's no amount of criticism you give Trump where he's going to start behaving differently. There is no amount of denunciation that's going to make him uh, suddenly be a more responsible person and stop doing this. So what I'd really like to see the media do is stop focusing on stuff he's saying at the podium and pay attention to all this other important stuff going out in the, going on in the rest of the country. Because you know what? As we just discussed, the food supply chain stuff, this stuff matters. This stuff matters a whole lot besides whatever thing, whatever thought pops into his head when he's live on television. And, you know, it's what is apparently becoming my trademark style. I'm finding a way to piss off both sides at the same time, Greg. So... Happy weekend, everybody. I think you need a break. I think we all need a break. So let's, uh, let's reconvene on Monday. Have a good weekend, Jim. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do have a good weekend. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Find us on those home devices by saying play three martini lunch podcast. And do join us again Monday for the next three martini lunch.